Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In Mexico, I would sleep in cemeteries because they're always a little bit outside of town and they have raised graves uh, so you can really hide away in there and they're up on a hill. And you know no one's going into a cemetery at night. So there are these great, quiet campsites that I would uh, I would go into. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this week's episode with Tom Tursich. On April 2nd, 2015, Tom left his home in New Jersey to walk around the world. It all began for Tom when he was a teenager, when a friend of his died in a jet ski accident. He spent over a decade building up to the moment where he had the means and confidence to undertake the journey, and honestly it's one of the most incredible examples of ultra-slow travel that I've ever come across. At the time of recording, Tom was on the home straight, with only a few miles left to go before arriving home. This episode is a close look at what motivated him to go on such a huge adventure, and Tom eloquently tells the tale of what happened over those many years of walking, wandering, and wondering. Okay, over to Tom Tursich. It would be ace for you to just start by telling me who you are and what you do with your life, whatever that means to you, and specifically in your case, where you are. Uh, yes, so my name is Tom Tursich. Uh, I will soon be the 10th person to walk around the world, and I'm doing it with uh, my dog, Savannah, who will soon be the first dog to walk around the world. Uh, and currently, uh, I'm about 35 miles from the end of that walk. How do you feel being 35 miles away? Yeah, it feels good. I'm, I'm very much, I'm just ready at this point. You know, it's been, I've been doing this for seven years. I've covered about 28,000 miles and um, yeah, it's been, it's been very long and it's been a great adventure. Uh, but at this point I'm ready for like a shower every day and a roof over my head and a bed and not setting up and breaking down my camp every day, not looking for a place to camp every day. Uh, so at this point, you know, it's, it's run its course, uh, mission accomplished. Let's get this thing over with. <laughs> mission, mission nearly accomplished. <laughs> nearly accomplished. Yeah. I think for lots of people, 35 miles is still quite a long way to just walk. Um, but <laughs> it's all relative, right? Yeah. Piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the obvious question, like, what made you stand up, put your shoes on and walk out the door to go and walk around the world? Uh, I had a friend who died when I was 17 and she was 16. And that was the first close experience with death. And it took me like six months or so to figure out what I'm like, how to integrate that information that I was going to die and it could happen at any time. And and then when I thought about like, what I wanted out of life, it was adventure and I wanted to travel and I wanted to understand the world. And then I discovered Carl Bushby and Steve Newman, these two guys who had walked around the world. And that just like, lodged itself in my head. And then it was eight years of saving money and going to school and then paying off loans and saving money and, uh, and just, just to try and make it happen. Uh, but yeah, it, it came out of my, my friend's death. And, um, and that's kind of what woke me up to you know, the, the brevity of life. And, and so, yeah, when I thought about my values, it seemed like the world walk uh, was, was the best way to align action to what I believed. So hang on, I didn't know that bit. So you, I'd assumed it was like, not impulse, but like, hey, I think I'm going to go and walk around the world. 
off I go. You planned it for eight years. Yeah, you thought it was going to be like a Forrest Gump kind of just, I'm going to go for a run right now. Uh, no, it was very much, <laughs> very much in my mind uh, since 17, yeah. Um, and it was, I guess, the kind of thing that I took on when I was like 17 as a sort of, um, it was it was very much a seed and who knows what if it's going to happen. You have a lot of ideas when you're 17. Uh, but I think it just it lined up so well w- with what I wanted out of life. And I was never like a great student, never really. Well, actually, I was a good student, and but I just stopped caring about it uh, at a certain point. And, you know, I wasn't I wouldn't say I was like meant for college to be in college. I got the degree and I did fine. But, you know, it's not like my natural um, habitat. <laughs> and and the world walk just like always called to me. I wanted to travel. And I wanted to like test myself and I wanted to have adventure. And so that's like the, the idea um, that stayed with me through that whole thing. And it was also sort of just like this guiding flag in the distance that I could direct my life towards where, you know, after college, I lived at home and, you know, any money I spent that, you know, is like was getting me further away from the walk. You know, so I lived at home at like this hundred dollar piece of junk car that got me around uh work like crazy sometimes i work in two jobs and uh and if you know i went out maybe once a week usually not even that and just saved and paid off loans as you know uh uh, to try and make it happen and and so it was useful it was useful to have that direction in a certain way to what extent was it all consuming if you knew it was what you were going to do yeah i mean I don't know if it was, it wasn't like all consuming, um, but it was, it was the direction uh, that I wanted to go and, you know, enjoyed other things and, and still hung out with people. Um, had uh, a girlfriend until about a, uh, well, two years before leaving. Uh, but it was more of uh, the world walk is such a big thing. You know, it's not like I'm just going on one mountaineering trek in, in Banff or something like that, or, um, or even it, it's not like I'm getting, you know, a doctorate or something where, okay, I'm going to go set up and I can still have a life around me. It's like, this is an insane idea and you're going to leave everyone behind and you're going to be on your own. Uh, and you're not going to have a way of making money unless it's through sponsorship or whatever uh, at that time. Uh, so like to make this happen, you, I had to save and, uh, like be mindful of, of how to like, you know, kind of make it happen. I don't want to say on my own cause I ended up getting a lot of help, but, uh, there's no institution for, you know, setting up world walkers. But why did it seem like a good idea? Like if life is so short, which it is, mm-hmm. why not walk the Appalachian trail? Why not, you know, go and climb a mountain? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, it was just—it was the world walk. It was the, seeing these two guys, and and that idea appealed to me. I think it was the traveling. I traveled a little bit when I was uh, younger, uh, but barely. I mean, Canada, um, the Dominican, Jamaica, and then like uh, England, Ireland, and Wales on on a trip. And so I, I like I, I was exposed a little bit to travel, but I really wanted that is what appealed to me. I think the most was I wanted to to see the world and. And it was a cheap way to do it um, by traveling through walking. It's not like um, I'm staying at hotels all the time. I'm not flying. Uh, I'm not going to many or um, sometimes never like these tourist sites. Uh, and so I think that I think that's what it was. That's what why it was the world walk rather than even like a walk across the country. And I think it's also that I wanted you know it to be big and extraordinary and. I remember in Dead Poet Society, which I saw after my friend Anne Marie died, and like that was very formative for me. And you know, it says, you know, you know, make your lives extraordinary. And for sure, that was an influence on me. You know, rather than settling for settling, like you know, walking across the country would be an amazing accomplishment for anyone. It's it's a great adventure, but for me, that wasn't enough. And doing the AT wasn't enough. It was, I wanted to do, <laughs> I wanted to walk around the world and wanted something bigger and and I wanted to understand the world. I wanted to I wanted to be out there and see it with my own two eyes and um yeah, experience it, live it. 
and I can see it like I know you know podcast this is an audio format right but I can see it on your face like I think this is such an amazing time to be chatting to you and catching you because you haven't done it yet but you sort of have and (laughs) I can sense it right like you know what's blowing my mind having this conversation this is often why I'm pleased we don't do too much prep is eight years you planned it and saved and then it took you what seven years is that where you're at yeah so we're into 15 years now and you've got 35 miles to go yeah you're catching me at the 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 very tail end of of basically half of my life and you're at your parents now right yeah i'm at my parents um uh for this interview for a couple other things and then I'll, i'll go back and pick up basically where i left off and um, I have a homecoming uh, on Saturday, uh, which is just a couple days away, um, and so I'll walk it out, and so I end at the uh, at the homecoming kind of thing. And how's it been being at your parents? Oh, it's great. Hey, I mean, I love my parents; they're great. Uh, I love waking up indoors. That's really nice. Uh, <laughs> it's nice, like you, you know, there's just like so many little things about like living on the road, having lived on the road for so long, that is just really taxing. And again, it's been a great adventure and I I have experienced so much, but there's all these little things that constantly need balancing when you're out on the road and, and you're constantly exposed to, and I have to worry about like how much food I have, how much water I have, how much food do I have for Savannah? Uh, it's, you know, if something goes wrong with my cart, I need to repair it. Maybe I need to repair my tent and then I have to find a place to sleep every night and, and I'm exposed to the elements every day. I mean, that's a huge drain is just being out in the elements every day. And there's days where it's really nice and I sleep under the shade of a tree, like at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon and it's just the best nap you've ever had. And there's days where I just have these amazing naps every day and the weather's perfect, then other days I'm walking through the rain for like four days and it's exhausting. Uh, and then again, just like the simple fact of uh, like the very mundane stuff of just like packing up my tent every day. It's like, I am so sick of that. <laughs> and it's, it was great. Uh, and it served me very well. Uh, but I'm ready not to do that for a good while. You know, I'm ready to not like, I've done that so thousands of times. I'm ready not to do that. Um yeah, so no, it, for me, it's it's just like it's it's a big relief, uh, and also, you know, I've had a lot of time to process everything. Uh, it, it was a very different experience when I first landed back in the U.S. Uh, I flew from Kyrgyzstan; that was my last country abroad. Uh, I wasn't able to do a couple countries I was hoping to because of COVID, uh, but so I flew back from Kyrgyzstan, and then uh, the last leg was walking from Seattle to New Jersey. And when I, when I landed in Seattle and started that first leg of the walk, uh, it was, it was an entirely different experience. It was exhausting. Uh, and it was so emotional and it was this very intense reflection on everything that I've been through and kind of all this armor that I had built up to get me through these, uh, foreign, uh, cultures and, and, uh, language barriers and just being in a different place. Uh, and so I've had a, a very long runway to kind of process the walk coming to an end. Uh, and so now that's all processed and like very proud of myself. Hey, good job. You know, you, you got through uh, all, you know, all those challenges and, you know, I was able to enjoy it on, you know, in my home country. Uh, but at this point it's like, okay, all that's processed. Now I'd like, now let's party. <laughs> <laughs> for quite a long time slowly and gently and hot baths things like that <laughs> mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> um god there's so much i want to ask you but i should save most of it till the end probably but um yeah let's let's go into it so sure. what was the moment where you like did you set a date to leave years before or did you just think okay i have enough money now i'm going to give it a month and then i'm going to go um it was so initially I thought I was going to leave. Um, so I did set a date because so when I when I started building out my route, like on a large scale, uh, I did it. Basically, I wanted to hit every continent. And initially, uh, the first two years would be down through first down to Panama. So through Central America and then from 
Colombia to Uruguay, uh, so South America. And both of those would be a year. And so the way, like, the the middle of that year, through Central America and then through the top of South America, that's all temperate zone. Uh, so I had it timed out where, okay, I have to leave at this certain time and, like, kind of hustle so I could get down to South America and catch a boat to Antarctica in their summer kind of thing. So I did actually, like, I'm kind of honestly amazed that I was able to, like, that it worked out the way it did and the timing was actually able to hold. And uh, so I said, I set a date um, initially for uh, like 2014, uh, April, 2014. And uh, that ended up kind of not working. Uh, My parents, they, because of the great recession, uh, they had lost their jobs a, a, a while before, and um, and they had this house that they just built before the recession, and they were underwater on it. So I was actually, I was like, I was paying for like to, to keep the house, and uh, so that like delayed me for a while, and then so it delayed me for a year, and then it got to the point where it was like 2015, and uh, I realized, or even before 2015, I realized that. Uh, if I didn't go now, I was I was going to be turning 26, and it's kind of if I didn't go now, I can't live at home forever. It's just not, I just you know it's just not going to happen. I can't do it. And uh, but it, it was two paths kind of ahead of me. I, I either had to, you know, get on with my life and move into Philly, in my hometown, my home city, and I would probably you know get an apartment. I, I mean, getting furniture, maybe a car, uh, a girlfriend, and then I get all these responsibilities. And then, you know, maybe when I was 50 and my kids had graduated, I could have another shot at walking around the world. Again, because this isn't like a mountaineering expedition or like doing a PhD. Uh, It's something that required me to like step away from everything. Uh, And then the other path was the world walk. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to leave before I turn 26. And so I set the date of April 2nd, 2015, the day before my 26th birthday. And that's when I really started kind of getting things in gear. And then right before I left, was able to get some publicity and some sponsors and and take off. But it says a lot about your character as well, that like you'd spent what must have been at that point, seven years saving all that money with one singular ambition. And then you had to use some of that money to look after your parents and contribute in that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that's what, is what it is, you know. That's they they raised me, so it's not a problem. Yeah, well, we won't dwell on all that too much because we could turn this into the psychology podcast. But I think that's you know, <laughs> it's impressive. I don't know. It does. I think stuff like that matters because it shows that it's not all about the singular focus. Like I said to you, you know, I can't remember the phrase I used, but what, was it all consuming? And you said no. And I yeah. think there's evidence. Is it right? Like. It would be fun, could be fun, could be challenging, would be challenging, but it's not the only thing that exists in the world. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's was part of the draw of like the world walk is that it's like this, it's this balance of adventure kind of thing, and and you get a little bit of everything, and it's not insanely demanding, and it doesn't require like all of. I mean, when I'm out there going, it, it's like it's pretty relaxed for for most of the time. I'm just walking and just in strange places. Um, but no, I mean, it's not all consuming. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think you can, I think you can kind of get into trouble when you're, you know, obsessed. And also just think you can be very foolhardy, like life, there's so many things happening in life and, uh, to be so dead set on, on one particular thing to the exclusion of everything else is probably just not healthy. I mean, you know, you need to. Like you should be sleeping eight hours a night and, you know, hanging out with your friends. <laughs> like that's good for you. I agree with that. Um, yeah. Cool. So let's just go into the classic, you know, well, maybe not. You walk out the door. What have, what have you got with you and where are you going? Yeah. Well, I walk out the, the, the front door of my house. And uh, at the time I had this huge cart that, uh, this guy, Tom Marchetti, built me. He has this maker space in the town over from me. And so uh, this, uh, I didn't know about like baby carriages. I had Now I push basically the souped up baby carriage that holds on myself. It's amazing. Uh, but at the time, I didn't like, think of that as an option. And so 
uh, this guy, Tom Marchetti, uh, built me this big cart. It looked like a big ice cream cart, and it just weighed so much. And I had so much stuff in there. It was insane and entirely unnecessary. I had I had the English version of Harry Potter and then the Spanish version of Harry Potter so I could learn Spanish and, and translate. It was just so excessive. Uh, and very quickly, within a couple of days, I had thrown away, you know, maybe 25% of the stuff I brought with me and then gradually winnowed it down. But I was thinking at the time, oh, I have this cart. I can just bring, you know, whatever I want. But then once I was pushing that cart up the hills of Pennsylvania, I was like, what am I doing? This is, you got to get rid of this, you know, for this thing I use once a day or maybe once a week, you got to get rid of it. Uh, And uh, yeah. And so, I mean, with the gear, it really just comes down to, you know, how critical is it? You you find that balance. If something's very critical, uh, but it weighs a good amount. uh, Yeah. Well, I guess that's, that's the two things. It's like, how much does it weigh? And then how critical is it? Uh, So like on, on the best spectrum, is something like Gorilla Tape or Duct Tape, where it weighs basically nothing, but it's really important that you have. Uh, the other thing is like, maybe I have this little axle uh, for my cart, and it weighs a lot. It's solid metal, and uh, but it's super important because I had an axle break in Colombia, and if something were like that to happen again, it's not like I could get a replacement. It's like this custom piece, so you carry that. Uh, but anyway, at the beginning, I did not understand that balance, and I was just throwing everything in there. And yeah, so I walk out the front door and walk down. I have this maybe 50 people or so to wave me off. And uh, I turn back to them. And I say, I'll see you in five years. And and then I walk down the street that I've walked down hundreds of times, and then they drive right past me, <laughs> and I kind of keep walking. And it's, it's funny because it was just very unceremonious in a way and very, uh, you know, lackluster. I walked that first day and I was still in an area I knew very well. And I was just outside of Philadelphia and my parents could have driven out to see me in, in a half an hour, but then gradually day after day, you know, got a little further away and, uh, and, uh, figured it out. And did they in those early days, like come and see you or did they leave you to it? <laughs> they, I had um, my sponsor, uh, Philadelphia Sign, drive me out a, a new tire at some point because I had these plastic run flat tires and it snapped because I had so much stuff in my cart. <laughs> and it was like, I was like 60 miles away. I was three or four days in and this uh, the tire snapped. And so they drove me out another tire. Uh, just had no idea what I was doing at the beginning. But you know, that's also why I started in the U.S. because it gave me kind of a runway to figure things out before I got into Mexico and uh, Guatemala and, you know, further south. And how did you feel like the first week? Can you, I don't know if you can remember. Yeah, I was on cloud nine. I mean, again, like we were talking about, you know, this is something that I thought about for eight years beforehand and had worked very hard towards even trying to just step out my front door uh, with some chance of it succeeding. Uh, so when I was out there, it was just, it was great. I was living my dream. And I, that's what I kept thinking. I was like, I'm out here living my dream. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of free. And, uh, and so it was, it was all, it was all good then. And it's, it's funny to think about it now and, and to be where I'm at now after, you know, having, you know, literally walked around the world and camped in all these crazy places and, um, you know, walked through all these different cultures and terrains and everything. Uh, but when I was first starting, even camping in Pennsylvania, uh, and I had done hiking before, but it was like this brand new adventure for me. So every time, you know, I was camping, it was like this like great sense of discovery. And, uh, and, and gradually I figured out little tricks, just like uh, I would now, especially in the US, there's a lot of churches and there's a lot of land. And so I just sleep like next to churches all the time. But I remember like a couple of days in not being able to find a place. And then there's this church and I was like, well, let's sleep behind there. And I was like, oh, this little kind of discovery that I could like put into my repertoire. And it's like gradually figure out these little things that help make it easier. Um, and then in, in like in Mexico, I would sleep in cer- uh, cemeteries because uh, they're always a little bit outside of town and they have raised graves. Uh, so you can really hide away in there and they're up on a hill. And you know no one's going into a cemetery at night. So there are these great 
quiet campsites that I would, uh, I would go into. Uh, so there's a bunch of little things, uh, but at the beginning, everything was a new discovery. <laughs> That's funny. This, uh, a Mexican graveyard isn't, you know, when people think about camping and like getting into nature and, you know, why they're doing it, <laughs> find a river and <laughs> a Mexican graveyard yeah. doesn't feel like <laughs> the dream yeah. campsite, but I suppose I that's... mean, there's like, oh, sorry, God. Yeah. No, I was just going to say uh, it's part of the necessity of it, right? Like you weren't there just to find a perfect river. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's the part of, you know, walking like internationally or even cross country is that you're going to have to walk these loud roads sometimes just by necessity. There's not a bike path the whole way across. Um, you know, and then that's taken to like the nth degree it, where it just applies to everything, uh, when you're walking across countries and yeah, ideally, you know, every country is Kyrgyzstan and there's like mountain river valleys everywhere. And you just have a perfect campsite no matter where you are. Uh, but in reality, you know, I've slept in it like outside, uh, on the ground, like in cities when I was beginning, I would just like sleep. I would lay out the tarp and just like sleep basically in the bushes somewhere. Uh, cause I, again, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to pace out my walking or, or how to find places to sleep. Um, you know, sometimes I'd sleep near a water tower and then I was relying on churches. Uh, but yeah, even, you know, once I figure things out, there's not always a river to camp next to or a stream to camp to. And when I do find one of those, I'm like overjoyed. Oh, this is a great campsite and really got to take this in. And I'm going to sit here and just enjoy the stream in front of me. I'm probably going to take a bath in the stream. Uh, but a lot of the time, you know, you just, you got to make do. And in Mexico, great thing was the cemeteries. And did you setting out, I sound so negative. I don't mean to, I'm just really curious, but like, I know that there will have been moments over the last seven years where you've just thought, why am I doing this? What an idiot or whatever, but maybe not. But um, when, when you were first setting out particularly, were there any doubts? Did you think this isn't a good plan? No, 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 I didn't have any doubts. Um, there was only one period where I kind of had any doubts at all about the walk. And that was, <clears throat> I had gotten uh, a bacteria infection after South America and it, it was really slow kind of growing. And, uh, so I had walked Ireland, Scotland, and then it, it developed to the point where I just couldn't go on anymore and, uh, knocked me out for about seven months. And then eventually I was able to start walking. And so I walked from Denmark down to Spain, but I had started up probably too quickly afterwards. Physically, I was kind of back, but mentally I had been in pain for so long that I was just in like a dark place. I'd never been before where my, all my thoughts just kind of bent towards the negative rather than towards the positive. And when I was out there then, uh, I was for sure just like, what am I doing out here? And you know, I can be with my family and you know, I can be with friends. And instead I'm out here pushing this freaking cart through the rain again. And I just, kind of lost the thread there and lost the, the, uh, the, the point of why I was out there. Uh, and it wasn't until I got on the, on to the Camino and I walked uh, a very good section of the Camino and then Via de la Plata, uh, the North South, uh, route through the center of Spain. Uh, but when I first got onto the Camino de Santiago, it was like the first time walking I ever had a community with me and it really helped bring me out of like this kind of dark, period that I was in and reset me and brought kind of the joy back. Uh, I think it was also time, but that is what helped. But yeah, when I was beginning, no, I mean, and also I think like to do the world walk, you kind of have to just be, I don't know if I could do it now. I, I mean, I guess I could uh, maybe in some years, but at the beginning, you know, you need to, uh, at least for me, I was like, I was on fire with the idea of it. And I was just so excited. And to walk through Central America, which is the most dangerous section of the world, um, you know, like every country in there, except for Costa Rica is in the top 15 of homicide rate. And uh, that's not to say they're all insanely dangerous, but, you know, if you're going to, there's a lot of places you can travel or walk. And that's probably, you know, not one of them, but uh, at the beginning, like I said, I was just so on fire with the idea of walking around the world that everything that came up, whether it's a problem or uh, whether it's like this mountain I have to cross or uh, if I'm pushing through the jungles of Costa Rica and it was just 
so insanely, swelteringly oppressive. Uh, it was all just these little obstacles to overcome and figure out. And so all of it was just part of this like bigger uh, puzzle to solve. And so no, nothing was this permanent obstacle that I couldn't uh, cross. It was just something to figure out and, and settle. Yeah. And in terms of obstacles and dangers and things like that, you know, you say South America was um, technically the most dangerous. Um, Central America. Sorry, Central America. Sorry. Um, did you experience much of that? Because it was the first, you know, as you said, you, you got out of the US and that's where you were. You know, welcome to the world walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I was in it right away. Um, I mean, you enter in like the border of the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of trade, you know, and there's a lot of desire to get into. It, it's like a big funnel, basically, Central America to to uh, to the U.S. border, and so there's just a lot happening, and that means in everything, including, you know. Uh, including drug trade or whatever. Uh, so it's like a very busy area at the border. And uh, I remember walking through there and people and uh, multiple people being like, what are you doing walking? Here? Like, I don't walk around here. <laughs> and uh, it's like, well, I, you know, this is what I have to do kind of thing. And uh, but no, I mean, like Mexico was fine. I mean, I would hear stories on uh, kind of like in the periphery. I, I slept uh, in the, this mess call factory somewhat into like north of Veracruz and uh and the guy was telling me the night before that this gang stopped a couple tourist buses and and just like robbed you know everyone in there and he showed me on the map where I was and I was camped like like a quarter mile just like in the woods I when I was camping in Mexico I would make sure I'd camp well before sundown and they'd just like push way into the into the bush and basically where this you know uh, robbery happened was just direct line from where I was camping to the road. And then in, in El Salvador, I saw the bodies of, of a husband and wife who had been, um, you know, uh, executed and they're like laying in the field. And, um, and then in Honduras, it wasn't like a direct thing, but, uh, I camped on, it was my last day in Honduras and I camped or slept in this like wooden structure um, near the Nicaraguan border. And I guess someone saw me like climb onto this kind of, it was like this two story wooden structure. I don't know what it was. And I climbed up top and okay, I'm going to be hidden up here. And then this, this guy comes and climbs up the ladder and here I'm coming up the ladder and I'm standing there and I got Savannah by my side and I just see the silhouette of this guy holding a machete. I'm like, Oh boy, this is not good. And, and then he starts laughing, uh, and he yells down, uh, es un gringo. Uh, and he thought someone had stolen his cows like the night before. And so he thought that, you know, someone was coming to steal his cows again. And he ended up just sleeping there kind of in this hut with me. And then in Panama, I got held up at knife point, but again, like small things though, compared to all at like, there's so many people living their lives and there's so much normalcy you know, and I'm like really out in the world kind of thing, but there's so much normalcy, which is, it's, it's a strange dichotomy because it, it is like, it, it can be a dangerous part of the world. And, and a lot of people want to migrate away from it for, for reasons. And there is their lives to migrate away from certain dangerous areas, but also walking through it, it's just like just people living their lives and they're walking to work and, you know, and they're selling pupusas and, and fruit smoothies and uh, everything else. But yeah, it's a strange, a strange sort of, uh, it's a strange sort of dichotomy that part of the world. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But you just said something extremely interesting around, mm. I think, just the way you said that these are little things compared to what these people are living through. I don't, 
you know, just to be really frank, I don't think you're just trying to sound like you mean that, which I think some people would. I think you mean that. And it often occurs to me that people who travel slowly see the world very differently to those who move through it quite quickly. And I just wonder whether or not you think there's... You, it seems like you integrated. You know, you felt like you were part of these communities even though you were different to them rather than a tourist. Or am I wrong about that? No, it's, it is, it's, walking is much more immersive than, say, traditional traveling where you fly in and then you, you know, catch a cab or a bus to Machu Picchu or to, you know, I don't know, the, the Eiffel Tower or Petra or whatever. You know, 99% of the places that I'm, I'm passing through are just places. And that's really what I like about it because I'm like the only foreigner there. And so you're seeing how people really live. But at the same time, I'm not spending enough time there to become immersed in these places in a certain way. Like I'm not I'm having these passing conversations. Sometimes I'll sit down and have these longer conversations with people, but I'm not really getting to know anyone on, you know, like this long, long-term period, unless I stay somewhere for a little while. Uh, so there was this sense that, you know, I'm like skimming on the surface of a lot, but I wasn't really digging in because uh, I was just always on the move. And, at, and after about a year and a half, um, that first year and a half through Central and then through a lot uh, about down to Peru and South America, I was walking 24 miles a day every single day, basically without rest. And I just like had to keep moving constantly. And at a certain point in Peru, I was like, you and also because I could afford the hotels, I was thinking, you know, I should probably like slow down and like see some of these places, uh, you know, a little greater depth. And so then in South America, after Peru, uh, from Peru on, I started taking weekends off just so I could, if, if it worked out that way. And so I'd stay in a little town and kind of explore little towns more often. And again, but it was always just very rarely that I was somewhere where I would see any other tourist. And when I did, I kind of was like off put by it, <laughs> you know, it's like, didn't feel like I was, you know, discovering a place or, or had a, you know, felt like a real adventurer, um, yeah, but I forget what the question was. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Who cares? Who <laughs> um, yeah. What, what do you think it was just a sense of determination that had prevented you from stopping up to that point? Totally. Yeah. No, it was, it was entirely just I had to prove it to myself and to everyone else that I could walk around the world. And after that year, year and a half, it was like, okay, yeah, you are going to do this thing. Uh, you know, I proved it to myself. And then it was like, all right, just like chill, relax and, you know, see some of these places. But it really was at the, at the beginning, it, it kind of wasn't even a choice. It was such a deep intensity from within me to prove this, that I could do this, uh, that I was just moving. I was hustling like crazy. And also I didn't have any money basically. <laughs> It's so interesting that you like, because a year and a half is such a long time to do something for, right? Like that for anyone is a long time. This amazing headspace thing of like, I know I can do this now. Like I'm, I, it's done. I just need to get on with it. Yeah, exactly. It was very much that. It was entirely, I mean, even from the beginning, even when I first had the idea at 17, it was like, I'm going to do this thing. And like, I knew I was going to do it at some point. And uh, I don't know what that is in me. It's just like, you know, bullheadedness or just de determination. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was very much, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And now it's just a matter. You just gotta, I just, I just have to wait and, and do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I, you know, I've spoken to a few people who are around the world cyclists and one in particular who took four years to do it because he deliberately did it on his terms and went slowly yeah. and stayed and stopped and went, Oh, I'm going to go that way for a hundred miles. And one who tried to break the world record for going around, you know, and I think those are very, very, very different things. My my point is how much time, if you were picking the fastest route, you'd stick to main roads, right? Almost certainly. But that would be a terrible way to walk around the world. How yeah. much did you deviate and... Yeah, you don't do much deviating when you're walking because every way is a long way. Uh, <laughs> you can't do much. But... No, I mean, yeah, it was like that first year and a half, it was really, you know, re I was really a maniac with how much I was walking and and uh, how 
few days off I took. And yeah, I think, I think there's something to be said just about going at whatever pace you feel like, uh, you know, within reason I'm, I'm generally, I like, I like to keep a pace and I like to keep moving, but you know, it's, this is like such a, it's such a long journey you have to have some sort of, you know, rhythm to it. You can't just stop. Oh, there's a nice town. I'm going to stop here for a month. And that you just, it would be really hard to leave that and then be out, you know, in the elements again and, you know, sweating every day and pushing up and down these mountains. Um, so there is like this balance between, you know, experiencing places and slowing down enough to do that, but also being kinetic and, and continually moving to, you know, stop from becoming soft. And, and it's, it's definitely, it's a real thing where in the U S it was difficult because, uh, there's points in the U S where I'm just, so I was so kind of over it. I'm just ready to be done kind of thing. And I'm ready for comfort, but I wasn't sort of, uh, I'm not, not allowed that yet. Um, and so it was this, you know, you can't stay too long or else it's going to get really difficult when you get back out there mentally, it'll get difficult. Uh, so yeah, it's that, it's that balance. And what was the longest you stopped anywhere? Apart from obviously, I know you took a lot of time off to recover from illness. Well, I got stuck in Azerbaijan for six months during COVID, uh, you know, just lockdown and every other country around it closed. There's no flights in or out. Uh, so I was there for six months, but it was a good place to be stuck. Uh, very peaceful, really affordable and, uh, you know, develop enough. I was in the capital Baku was developed enough where I could kind of get really whatever I wanted, um, you know, to, to a certain point I can get whatever food and anything else that I wanted. And I could live there, you know, for just for like a couple hundred dollars a month. It was pretty cheap. And then eventually I was able to get a flight out to Turkey and, and just like walk around, turkey some more uh and and this was still during covid during the kind of height of covid and i ended up posting up in uh, a beach town mediterranean town down there on the southern coast and i was there for because like three and a half months until i was able to get into uzbekistan and kyrgyzstan uh so yeah covid really slowed me down but before then it would be like maybe a month max somewhere because that's what, yeah, I'm just, it's a whole podcast conversation for another day, but fascinated by that slow versus fast travel and what it does to a person and the difference, right? Like a month somewhere, nobody does a month living somewhere. That's not a holiday. That's, <laughs> you know, even on an expedition, yeah. we're moving, right? Like a month is, you live there. Yeah, yeah. To a certain extent, yeah. But yeah, strangely, it's, well, you know, I was in Croatia and that's where, like a quarter of my, my heritage is from. So that's where my great, great grandfather came over from. And so I post up with like some family there on this little Island Kirk. And, um, and then my family, my parents and my sister came out for uh, the first time they hadn't visited me, uh, up till then. And, uh, actually, no, I ended up, so I was with family there for a while. And then I walked a little more and I, I went to Zadar, this uh, little peninsula, uh, like beautiful town, and it's all walled in, and it's just very idyllic. And so that's where I posted up. I had this little apartment, and I was kind of just like waiting for them to get there. Certain things, so I had to slow down. And uh, so I was there maybe for I think it was in Zadar for three weeks or something like that. And then when my family came, uh, it was in a strange way. It was like they were coming to my home. You know, even though it's like I've been there for three weeks, but it's also just like I'm so accustomed to being on the road. And so I very, it very much felt like I was welcoming the them. I was like, all right, we go to this restaurant. Here's the things we can do. And also just like I was so at ease with kind of, you know, navigating, um, you know, a different, you know, a foreign place. Uh, whereas my parents and my sister aren't extremely well traveled, uh, definitely not to the same extent that I am. Um, and so for, for them to come and just like me to be able to just guide them sort of effortlessly was very much just like, it was like my home in a certain way, which is strange to think about. So you say that's the first time that your mother and sister came out to visit you. I'm guessing you saw them when you went back from Scotland when you were sick. Yeah, no, yeah, I was, I was at home. Yeah, then. But yeah. what was the longest you went at the start? What was the time difference between leaving and seeing? Years. Yeah, two years. Yeah. 
And given the things you'd experienced, both all the negative stuff that happened in Central America and beyond, you know, you we glossed over you coming across two people who'd been executed, things like that. But and I'm not saying we should go into it in detail now, but all of that stuff and all of the good stuff, did they notice a fundamental difference in you? Yeah, I think they did. I mean, you'd have to ask them about that. Uh, but I think it's just was really the transformation is just going from, you know, a green suburban kid to uh, someone who has, you know, traveled. And, and I think there's a really big difference. Uh, I mean, it's just there's so many subtle changes in your understanding of the world and the understanding of yourself. And really, I think it just comes down to like a sense of perspective and scale and where you fit into the world. And when you haven't traveled, and especially like for me, where I grew up in this very idyllic little suburban New Jersey town that is like perfectly safe and so developed and comfortable. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal to travel and just be exposed to anything different. And you think you know what the world is and you find out you're, no, you're just an idiot and like you haven't traveled at all and you don't know anything. And uh, so it's, it's really, I think, good for someone to, to just have more perspective about where they fit in. And I think it's good for your empathy because it reveals that, you know, basically all of life is circumstance. And, and then it also is useful for gratitude because, you know, no matter where you are, um, you have a sense of appreciation for like the, the good parts of it and, and the things that you like about it. And, you know, the, the, like the original title of, you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, or the Hobbit, you know, there and back again, you know, the hero's journey kind of thing. And, uh, it's like a classic narrative structure for a reason is because it is based in truth where you leave and you see the world and you grow and then you come back and maybe part of you is will never be totally satisfied because you have seen a lot of different things and you don't get that same sense of adventure but another deeper part of you can be really grateful because you are able to appreciate you know simple things and what pieces and uh and kind of the blessings that you've had in life so i think yeah it's it's travels really really healthy for uh, for the mind you're not going to find me disagreeing with you <laughs> um i've often said to people you've made me rethink it i often say to people like um the older i get the more i realize i don't know right it's like the death of ego and things like that but maybe it's actually the more i travel or the more miles i walk the more i realize i don't know you know yeah it could be both you know yeah when you're just time passes you you explore more of yourself inwardly and other people and then when you're traveling you're exploring more spatially and culturally yeah no but i mean you 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 flew a few times through necessity obviously and i know you took a ship to antarctica and all this kind of stuff but in terms of I think something that plays on a lot of people's minds who are travelers or into traveling is how we justify it in the modern world when we know the damage that it may or may not be doing. What do you think about, I need to ask this question really carefully, given the obvious huge positives of travel and adventure, etc., how do we justify it and yeah, maybe I'm answering the question myself, but what is it for you that makes it feel so important? And how do you think we should be traveling in the modern world? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's difficult. I, I mean, like, for myself, I feel like I can kind of wash my hands of that in a certain way because I'm walking and it's so low impact for almost all the time. And then I fly maybe once a year or something. Um, but on like a, a greater scale and with increased globalization and with you know, in, increased, uh, interconnectedness. Well, it's again, a little difficult right now with COVID, uh, you know, may have dropped, but you know, the problem is I feel like you do have to have, there's a very delicate balance between personal responsibility and really systemic responsibility. And I think it's important for people to do what they think they need to do individually to, uh, feel like they are reducing 
their impact. And, and I think, you know, a very simple thing is just like, if you're going somewhere, don't trample over why you're there kind of thing. Like be respectful of whatever you're there to see. You know, if you're there, like there's those famous photos of like the, what is it? The super bloom in California, these like huge fields of, and the, these Instagrammers lay in the fields and they destroy kind of what they're there to like photograph. And so like, that's like on a very simple basic, it's kind of just like tread lightly and, and mindfully. Uh, but I also think it goes back to like one of the fundamental lessons that I've learned from traveling. is just like, people are really small and you control so little of your life. I mean, think about like anything you're striving for in your life and how long it takes you to achieve that, or maybe you will never achieve it because you're really tiny and there's a lot of circumstances. There's a lot of people who would love to move to the USA who are just not going to be able to because of wherever they're born. I have a friend in Iran who is like walking circles around Iran and would love to walk around the world, but he can't because he has an Iranian passport. And so it's just like, that's it. And so the thing that I think is probably more important is maybe protesting or, you know, writing letters to, uh, I think the most important thing comes down to just like an effective democracy and being able to vote for better systemic change because, you know, one individual eating meat or not eating meat, maybe it won't have a huge impact. It it would if everyone did it, but probably not going to happen. But you need, you need like systemic change to um, reduce uh, carbon emissions and to make this balance because people are going to travel. People want to travel. That is not going to stop. It's a, it's an option. So people are going to keep traveling. So there needs to be a balance. I mean, there needs to be cleaner ways to travel. Uh, you know, maybe these airline companies need to be forced. There should be a, a cap and trade system. So they have to pay for their carbon, but you can't put it on the individual and say, Hey, this is on you. Like it's your fault. You're traveling. People are going to travel that it's just, that's how the world works. It's how people work. And people, and I think people should travel, uh, but there needs to be larger systematic change. And so I think if you're going to put your energy into anything, you know, uh, it should be, you know, writing letters to your congressman or in whatever country you're in is uh, focusing on, you know, green initiatives and actual green initiatives like cap and trade and in carbon taxes. That's such a great answer. Like, I don't think anyone's explained it like that before. And it, I love the, it's always so difficult and you feel like a hypocrite or one feels like a hypocrite for saying things and then going and doing something else. But you're right. Like I, I can't not now I've seen what's possible and I can't not, you know, I'm going to try and limit how much I fly. I love overland journeys. I want to do more, but I can't just stay here. And I think people often say friends, people on this podcast etc like it can feel like we can't do anything but actually it is that you know power of one multiplied um writing letters you know it's a simple simple thing a little bit of protest vote in a certain way Um, yeah i think we're we're like in a strange age where you know the kind of the planet was just really pillaged indiscriminately for decades and now we're living through the consequences of it and you see the consequences of it. And yet there's like not a great amount of action being done. And so I, I think like you just need to put a lot of a lot of weight on on that, you know, to there needs to be a lot of political pressure to instill change into the system. And and again, it, it has to be a systemic change. Uh, and this but this applies to like everything, like on a larger scale from all the traveling that I've done. And you see these countries kind of back to back right next to each other. You can see just how much, uh, you know, one system affects everyone versus another. I mean, like there, there's a bunch of examples, but like the one, the one that comes to mind is, um, well, first of all, like every time I'm in, 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 in an autocracy or a dictatorship, like they just like, they're not fun and they're not like, they're a little dull and the people are, are, always have these weird idiosyncrasies probably distilled in them from uh, from whatever these arbitrary laws are. So I, like going from, say, Georgia and Azerbaijan are right next to each other. Uh, these two little countries in the Caucasus, they're about the same size. Azerbaijan is wealthier uh, than Georgia is. 
but Georgia is infinitely more vibrant and interesting of a place. It's a democracy. Uh, they don't have many natural resources. So everyone there kind of has to hustle and you have, you know, world-class wine, amazing food, great art, great ballet. Um, everyone's doing something. And so that's part circumstance, but also it's a democracy. And so there's a freedom of expression and ideas. And and then right next door, you have Azerbaijan, which has a lot of gas and oil money, and it props up this dictatorship. And, you know, you can argue, okay, so they do some benevolent things, but on, in aggregate, it is not nearly as vibrant and the people aren't you know, nearly as free. You don't have freedom of speech in the, to the same extent uh, that you do. And they have the second oldest wine region in the world, Azerbaijan. And their wine sucks compared to Georgia. And, you know, you, you need to, you know, that's a system. The money is going right to, it goes into oil. And, and they have the Caspian Sea and the surface of the Caspian Sea all around Baku was just covered in oil. And, um, you know, and that's that's like systemic stuff where, uh, you know, if there's democracy and there's right to protest, probably the water would be clean. Maybe. I mean, maybe not. It maybe wouldn't be. Uh, but there's a higher chance. And so like, there's there's a lot of examples of this. Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan was another example I saw directly. Um, and then even Ecuador and Peru, which are both democracies, but like they have different histories and everything. Um, uh, but yeah, so I'd see these, I'd see these differences, and 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 then you just see people living their lives, like people just live, go about their days. And when people are going about their days, like most people aren't political, most people aren't going to sacrifice everything to make a change. Most people just want to work. They go to the grocery store, they get some food, and they want to hang out with their family, and that's pretty much it. And so you just need like big, good systems in place. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think, yeah. you know, I was going to ask you at the end, and we've talked about it too much already, but like, what has travel taught you, and particularly slow travel? Because you'll probably be, it would be pretty hard to argue, like, you must be one of the best travel people in the world in terms of duration and location. It's hard to argue with. Um, but I think your answer is obvious. You just said it, right? Like, it's given you perspective. Yeah, it gives you perspective. And, you know, and like knowing that people are very small, uh, makes you more accepting of others and of yourself and of your limitations and and makes you more empathetic towards other people's limitations and your own limitations. But then also reveals, again, that to to be effective, we got to have good systems in place, which is why, you know, we gave up monarchies because they're not good systems. It's why communism didn't work. It's not a good system. <laughs> We've still got one technically, but you know, it's kind of a novel gesture these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> it's a figurehead. Um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. do you are you all right for time or I'm conscious of time? Yeah. Do you have, no, you're you're right? good, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Just because I'm I've realized a fundamental failure as a podcast host in this particular interview is we haven't mentioned the dog. And I mean <laughs> surely, surely this is the other show. She's all right. <laughs> um we have to have the conversation surely um yeah. so talk to me about where she came from and the circumstances and just tell me the story uh yes yeah, so i started the walk on my own uh and after uh, about four months of walking through the u.s and camping in strange places and just by the virtue of camping in strange places you kind of wake up three or four times a night thinking you hear something or someone's coming and so I kept thinking over and over again, man, it'd be really nice to have a dog and outsource that be listening. I'd be able to sleep. And I know if someone was coming, she would hear it well before I did. And so when I got to Austin, Texas, uh, where my cousins were, I figured, oh, you know, I'm going to go to this adoption center and, and just see what's there. And I spent about two hours looking at all these different dogs and none of them really fit. And just as I was about to leave, they brought out uh, these two little puppies that they, the workers, the volunteers had just found on the side of the highway. And, uh, I kind of knew right away. I was like, this is perfect. Uh, you know, I'm going to grab this little puppy and she's going to grow up on the road and, and, uh, you know, she'll protect me, which she hasn't and won't like, I protect her. She's such a, you know, she's such a softy, <laughs> but yeah. So, so I adopted, uh, Savannah there. Her name was Lulu at the time. I changed it to Savannah. And then we spent three weeks at my cousin's, you know, getting shots, everything like that. And then when we started walking, you know, she was four months old and 
and, you know, not trained, obviously. And so uh, I would put her in the back basket of my cart and I would take her out a couple times a day, get her to walk as much as she could. And when she was done, I put her back in the basket and keep walking. And gradually, by the time we got to Mexico, she was doing like the full 24 mile days, like nothing. And what's interesting was at the at the beginning, I really was not affectionate towards her at all. It was so utilitarian, my relationship with her and she was a puppy. And so I was like, you're not doing your job. Like, you know, you should, (laughs) you know, I was frustrated. I was like, I got you to, you know, protect camp kind of thing and warn me if something's there and, and keep up with me. And it's like, you're not doing that. And so I didn't like feel like this, you know, I was obviously good to her, whatever else, but I didn't feel like this affection towards her. And I felt more this responsibility but then somewhere down in southern Mexico, I remember looking at her and we had just walked through Mexico and thinking, oh, I love this little bugger. And, uh, you know, and and uh, she's been a great companion. She keeps up. And, you know, at this point, the relationship is something like beyond, you know, like affection. It's it's the it's like admiration. And I just have uh, so much like, respect for her because she's such a beast and you know, I remember walking in Peru and we were walking through the desert uh, day after day after day. And there's days where just like thing, like my mind was just so gray or I had a stomach ache and you just got to walk through the desert anyway. And I'd like look down at her and we're just doing these empty, endless miles and her tail's up and she's just walking away, walking along. And I don't know how she feels, you know, but she does the 24 miles, 30 miles without complaint. She tries to play at the end of the day and, and then she wakes up the next day and her tail's wagging and she wants to do it again. And, uh, you know, and she walked through snow and, and the heat and, and mountains and everything else. And yeah, at this point it's just like, I have so much, she's such a, she's such a beast. I have so much respect for her. Um, and she's been uh, in a certain way, a good teacher, you know, on how to just go through your day without complaint and, 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 uh, just, kind of do what you're there to do and enjoy it. And how are you both, do you think, going to deal with it ending? Uh, I think she'll do okay. She's seven now. She's the same age as the walk. Um, And I think that's a good time to retire (laughs) for a dog. Uh, You know, when we first started, uh, again, in Peru, we walked these really long days. And I have these very vivid memories of camping just out in the desert somewhere. And we would do like a 30 mile day. And then at the end of the day, she'd be like running around in circles, trying to play with me. And I'd be sitting there exhausted. So she doesn't do that anymore. You know, at the end of the day, she like, maybe she'll run a little bit. And then she's like, okay, I'm going to come and go to bed now. Uh, so I think it's a good time for her to, uh, you know, to kind of slow down. She'll still need a lot of walks, but you know, there's no need for eight hours of walking a day. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then for myself, I don't know. I mean, it'll be, I'm, I'm very ready for it. I think I've been out here long enough where I think it'll be an easy transition and I'll, and I'll be able to appreciate, at least for a while, um, just the, the comforts of home. So how long have you been walking across this part of the U.S., this leg of the journey? Uh, I started in September or no, in August. Yeah, in the middle of August. Uh, so whatever that is, 10 months or nine months, something like that. I took a month off in uh, December and into January. Yeah. So, I mean, culturally, like, it's not like you've, you know, flown back from New Zealand or whatever and you'd, yeah, landed yeah. home. No, I've had a very, I've had a very long runway to kind of just wrap my head around everything. Uh, and I'm glad I, I'm glad I did it this way. Um, because it, it would be really jarring to just go from Kyrgyzstan and then be like, okay, I'm done and stop. That would have been really jarring. But yeah, like you said, like culturally to have this runway and this time to kind of like reflect and ruminate on everything, uh, I think it'll make it it'll make it easier. Yeah. Um, and I very, very rarely ask people what they're going to do next because I just always think it's better to hear what they've done rather than what they intend to do. But mm. I don't know, it's different with you because you spent eight years planning something and normally people are like, I'm going on an expedition and it's going to be badass and then they do and it is. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you spent eight years planning something, seven years doing something, and as an adult, you've never known anything else. What's your plan? Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I, I do have a literary agent, so once I'm st- once I'm done, I'll put together a proposal, 
and hopefully spend the next year like writing a memoir. That would be it. Uh, but yeah, after beyond that, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think that's that's the next stage is uh, do some writing and get down the story and its details and, and go from there. Yeah, amazing. Okay, yeah. Um, I'll leave you to it in a sec, but um, I always ask I people um, two questions at the end of every interview, um, super mm-hmm. fast. So interpret them however you wish, but um, <laughs> what scares you? Uh, what scares me? I would say what scares me is... Uh, this is like a strange answer answer but i would say i mean death scares me but at the same time like it doesn't scare me so i I would say having not lived like a thoughtful life i think is what really scares me uh yeah it's a strange relationship with death i mean especially after when amory died um you know it was so uh visceral in a certain way and certain uh it's kind of given me this mindset of just like, kind of like I'm already dead. Like that's the conclusion. It's like, I'm already dead. It's already over. It's all, it's all wash, you know? So you kind of just make the most of life and be a little more reckless with your life because you're not getting out. It's over. Um, So yeah, I would say, I would say, yeah, not living a full life. Good life. Yeah. And then what brings you hope? Um, What brings me hope? Uh, What brings me hope is, that like everyone around the world is nice and good. There's a lot of really good people. Like everyone, just about everyone is good. And, and so like on a, on a small scale, everyone is really well-intentioned. And again, it just comes down to whether you have a system in place to help people succeed and thrive and, and like, uh, contribute and be generous. Um, so it gives me hope that like, uh, at its core, you know, we got a good base, you know, just constantly got to tinker. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you, Matt. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced by Orla and Murray. If you want to get in touch, then you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. And please do leave us an honest review on iTunes as the numbers help us reach a wider audience and we're genuinely interested in the feedback.